This episode of the Folklore Podcast contains descriptions of historic execution and torture. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Across Europe, from the 16th century until the early 20th century, the news of the deeds of criminals and their subsequent executions was delivered via song, often printed on cheap single-sheet broadsides or small book-like pamphlets, as well as passed on orally or via manuscript. Songs were usually set to a familiar tune, often indicated at the top of the pamphlet, which allowed anyone to easily sing along. They were sold in busy streets and marketplaces by street singers, who usually sang the contents of the pamphlet in order to promote their wares. All you that come to see my fatal end, unto my dying words I pray attend. Let my misfortunes now a warning be to everyone of high and low degree. Had I been kind and loving to my wife, I might have lived a long and happy life. But having run a loose, lascivious race, my days will end in shame and sad disgrace. My duty towards God I did neglect, therefore what mercy can I now expect when I before the mighty judge appear to... Execution ballads could be graphically violent, usually compassionate, sometimes satirical, but always compelling. And in recent times, they've been researched drawn together and studied in depth by our guest today, Dr Una McElvena. Una is an honorary senior lecturer in history at the Australian National University and the author of the book Singing the News of Death, which examines the tradition of singing execution ballads across Europe from 1500 until 1900. Her website on the topic is a unique and valuable resource on the area. Una met with our literary correspondent Hilary Wilson to talk, and occasionally sing, about the subject of traditional execution ballads. How did you first get interested in the subject? Well, when I was doing, I was finishing my PhD on a completely different topic and realised at the very last minute that, oh gosh, there's songs everywhere and I haven't really (laughs) noticed them and I've kind of overlooked them. And then Um, I managed to squeeze a little bit in about songs in that project. Um, But I knew then when I started something new and I was, um, a job came up that wanted people to look, a a postdoc, to look at public execution. And so I had to think of what, you know, what's my angle? What's my new thing that I can add to this discussion? And I thought I'll look for songs because I had noticed at that point that when there would be an article or something about executions, they would mention ballads and they'd quote maybe a couple of lines from a ballad. 
Um, but that was it. There was no t- there was no discussion of it as as a performance or as a song. And I noticed as well, really importantly, that in the footnote, they would give the full title of the ballad mm-hmm. and it would include the words to the tune of and then this other song. And I thought, oh, that's really important because that brings a whole nother like level of meaning about that song. So I said, I, I'm going to do this big project. And um, I had no idea if there were that many songs. <laughs> and of course, <laughs> there are thousands. There's far more than I know what to do with, right? You know, um, I think when I had to finally give a number, a, a sort of total of execution ballads for the project when I was writing the book, um, I came to about 1,300. Um, but there are many, many more. I find them all the time. Yeah, I was noticing in some of the footnotes that you had mentioned just piles upon piles of songs. <laughs> It was yeah. really astonishing to me. Yeah, the the I'd say there are probably more collected in the English language than there are in other languages, um, and some uh, some collections are you know um, digitized collections just of songs, uh, whereas other ones, for example, um, in French, there's lots of digitization going on, but nobody's kind of gathered them all together in a mm-hmm. in a song database, you know. So. Um, the other struggle with finding them is that they don't have the words execution ballad um, written at the top. That's not in the title. Uh, they'll often, they'll, the title will be something like the justice enacted upon the body of the criminal, you know, it'll be something like that. So I, I, I ended up looking for the word justice because that's more often um, likely to be found in the title. And that, that is, yeah, was a more efficient way of searching. Yeah, that's interesting, though. And mm. you were collecting songs um, not just in English, but in other languages as well. And yeah, um, so I look at songs in English, French, German, Italian, and Dutch. Was there a great discrepancy in how many still words in existence? Since you know some of the English murder ballads are much better known, you know, execution songs. Yeah, like I said, I think I think the 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 English were the best collected, the best stored, and I don't know. Um, I, I doubt, to be honest, that it meant that there were more being produced at the time. I don't mm-hmm. think that was the case. There were there were songs being sung on every topic, and it's important to understand that it's not just execution um, that was the, the the subject of ballads. There were songs about everything, and in fact, that's what I'm starting to work on now is all the other kinds of news categories, um, like disasters and military conflicts and politics mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, but, you know, for, for doing this project, I had to kind of ignore all of those thousands <laughs> of other ballads and kind of um, just concentrate on these ones, crime and punishment. Um, yeah, so I, I, those kinds of songs are being produced all over Europe in, and, and I, you know, I look at five languages, but I know that there are, um, they're done in every language. You know, I have colleagues working on Scandinavian language ones, Spanish ones, um, Polish and Czech. There's a big bunch of people working on Czech ballads. So oh, that's um, fantastic. And, and the, what's extraordinary is when you start to to look at them, you realize how much continuity there is in, in terms of form, um, in terms of content. Um, the same sorts of tropes are used. The same kinds of you know, this is a really a, a very um, coherent tradition across Europe. So that's kind of fascinating. And I just you know. It's having to know you have to stop yourself and say, I, have to, I can only go this far. Um, I mean, I started when I started the project, I was going to do four languages um, because I, you know, I already worked in French 
And I thought, well, Italian, I've got a bit of Italian, I had a bit of German. I thought mm-hmm. I could, you know, do something ambitious and do four languages. And then, of course, after I'd been doing it for several years, I realized that the Dutch songbook database is this enormous database of 175,000 songs, all of oh, which wow. have been digitized. Yeah. And um, I thought, I can't ignore that. I can't just say, oh, I'm not going to look at that, you know. Oh, so yeah, that would be something you could just lose yourself in. <laughs> Right. Um, so, yeah, I had to, um, you know, just pay, pay for someone to translate the songs for me. But um, that's the, the, the Dutch stuff was actually a very a much later addition to the project. Yeah. Are a lot of the songs being digitized now? Um, is there a lot of work to make them more accessible to the public? Yeah. Um, and that's interesting uh, um, comparatively uh, because the digitization in different languages in different countries is uh, really different. Um, the English language stuff is, has been digitized for decades. Mm-hmm. The Bodleian Library uh, in Oxford was doing it two decades ago. Uh, but the, by the, at the other extreme is Italy, where there is almost no digitization at all. And it was um, a bit of a concern when I was getting towards the end and realizing that I had no 19th century Italian ballads like I had for all the other languages. And then just by chance, I I chanced upon um, the Florence State Archive has been digitizing some material. And so they had a big collection of 19th century ones. And I thought, oh, great, (laughs) that's a relief. Um, But really, it's very, very hit and miss with Italy. So those are the kinds of... um, issues that can come up when you're doing comparative work that uh it's it's a lot of it is dependent on the budgets of libraries and things like that um didn't you say in the book also that there was trouble with um things not being as well preserved through time you know due to wars and just oh uh, yeah i mean it's it's all uh a lot of it can just be chance that something survives um and you know, I'm I'm pretty sure that the reason that the British material is being better researched is that there were people just taking care of that stuff better. You know, you had well-known collectors. Um, I don't think that there were necessarily more to begin with. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just got lucky there, really. Yeah, because things can just get lost in fire or just right. not viewed as important. Well, I mean, it's really interesting that the Ballad Warehouse in London in the in the 17th century is obviously massive and it burns in the Great Fire of London. And so they immediately build a new one, right? That's how important this business is, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we lost. Who knows how much we lost in that? Um, but I think things like the Thirty Years' War, for example, which is kind of like a world war for your continental Europeans. Almost everyone is involved. Um, there must have been such loss through that, um, that, that, you know, the British weren't as involved in. So, yeah. Um, uh, so since it was a comparative study, um, how did you find that, you know, things differed from culture to culture, you know, within the execution songs? Uh, so there are some differences. Um but I mean, for me, the the thing that kept I was always struck by was how similar these um, these various uh, traditions were. That it for me, it was a, a like a pan European tradition. This isn't something mm-hmm. that it happened in one place. Um, but certain things are different um, in terms of, for example, contrafactum. 
Could you explain what contrafactum is for the listeners? Yeah, so contrafactum is simply putting new words to a well-known tune. Um, And, you know, the most obvious example is um, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star (laughs) and the alphabet song, right? You know, Uh, (laughs) it's just the same tune and you know it and it makes it easy to remember. And And it blows uh, your mind when you learn that. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) I was, there was somebody listening to this going, I'm today years old when I learned that. Um, But it's actually an an ancient tradition and it's certainly very popular in the Middle Ages. Um, You know, monks are setting new uh, words to to hymns and things. So it's, it's everywhere in Europe. When it comes to execution ballads, for some reason, the Italian songs are the only ones I find that don't have a tune indication. So in English, French, German, and Dutch, um, and this is also true for Scandinavian songs, uh, the, at the, they'll have the title of the song, and then it'll say something along the lines of, to the tune of, and then you get the title of the other song. Uh, Italian execution ballads don't contain that tune direction which is interesting because other Italian songs do in this period it's not that the Italians don't know what contrafactum is that's not it but they just don't use it for their execution songs and so I spent a long time trying to work out how do you sing these songs and then I started to look at the meter in which they were written mm-hmm. and realized that some of them were in Ottavarima, which is the you know uh eight line verses that they use for singing epic tales of chivalry and stuff. Okay. So you're telling a kind of a narrative song. Um, others were in Terza Rima, which is what Dante and Boccaccio wrote their, um, their poetry in. And then somewhere in this other form, which I worked out was called a bazzeletta, which just means like a jest or a joke. And so what I then started to work out, okay, who, what, what do the songs look like in each meter? I realized they were very, very different. And so Terza Rima, um, as befits the poetry of Dante and Boccaccio, is entirely, those songs are always about noble people who are depicted as very sympathetic. Um, they, their execution is only kind of obliquely mentioned. It's very much about how they're, how remorseful they are about this terrible thing that's happened. And they're very, very sympathetic. The Ottavarima, by comparison, are more like, you know, execution ballads in other languages in that um, the criminal is a terrible, heinous person who deserves to die. And here's all the terrible things they did. And then they mm-hmm. die at the end horribly. Um, Bazzaletta, where they, they were the most fascinating because they were joke songs making fun of the criminal because it's a criminal we already don't include in our society. So Jews, Moors, um, anyone who was, they sort of could laugh at. Um, and so they would like mock this person who'd be begging for mercy. You know, they're, it's quite dark. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Um, yeah. So, so Italian execution ballads, they had a whole different kind of meaning um that would come into it with other in other languages, the contrafactum works because you remember uh, singing that well-known song about something else. And so you bring a whole set of kind of emotional associations with it into that new version. Uh, so that's always being used in a very deliberate way for all kinds of purposes. It can be, it can be that something is sad. 
that something uh, reminds you of sort of an injustice. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe you're reminded of um, something fun that you did. And so you're quite happy that this person is being executed because. So it's just a yeah. shorthand way to evoke an emotion in the listener. Yeah. And it's, it's used everywhere for all kinds of, yeah, to all kinds of ends. Mm. And it's interesting that, you know, with the Italian, it would be, you know, the actual meter, you know, itself, mm. that would be a bit of a shorthand. Yes. And I think that's because, I mean, they still have people singing songs today in Ottawa and stuff where they are, they have tunes. And, and I worked out that the tune is, it kind of depends on where you're from. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you, you know, if you're from a certain area of Italy, you sing Ottawa like this, and whatever. And, and so for those people, those melodies contain those associations still. But yes, yeah. it's very much tied up with the metrical form. With Italian having an entire meter dedicated towards mocking, you know, some particular group, did you see similar writings with the other cultures? You know, similar songs that were viewing the execution in that sort of dark, caustic way? Oh, yeah. Um, in yeah definitely with heretics um but specifically uh i only really find that kind of very sarcastic caustic humor in english and in french songs about heretics being executed they are absolutely rejoicing in the horrific mutilation of the body of the heretic um because you really get the sense that they view this heretic as you know uh polluting the body politic, right? That that they are poisonous, and so you really have to be, you know, you're extremely ecstatic that they've been they've kicked out and destroyed. Um, so there's a really good example, uh, a song called "A Letter to Rome," because um, what happens in 1570 is that the Protestant Queen Elizabeth the First is excommunicated by the Pope. Mm-hmm. And he does this through a papal bull, which is like an open letter, right? A big public letter. And there's a Catholic in England who, um, I mean, this means that Catholics can now just assassinate her and go and go to heaven, right? Yeah. So uh, this very brave uh, Catholic goes up to the door of the Bishop of London's palace and puts the papal bull, you know, hammers it into the door. He's immediately arrested. His name is John Felton. And he is given the typical treatment for um, heretics under Elizabeth, which is to be uh, drawn to the execution site um, on a sledge, uh, to be hanged until he's almost dead, and then to have his um, body cut into essentially five pieces. So each limb cut off and each arm and his uh, his head is decapitated He's and stuck on a spike and they'll the, each quarter, each limb is taken to a different gate of the city of London and put up, um, I, ideally sort of north, south, east, west, so that anyone approaching will say, oh, my God, they really don't like heretics here. I better do what I'm told, right? Right. The song about John Felton's uh, execution is written as an open letter to the Pope, congratulating him on how dedicated his followers are and saying, why don't you come to London to pick up your mate, your friend, um, you'll find bits of them all over the city. Um, it's 
it's quite something. I'd set to the tune, Row Well Ye Mariners. And that's another whole level of meaning, right? Because Row Well Ye Mariners is like a country dance song where you line oh up gosh. all the girls on one side and all the boys on the other and you clap hands and you do see your partner. And, you know, we have the, we have the, um, we still have the words for it and the dance steps, right? And so it was actually apparently sung a lot about, um, like anti-Catholic songs used it quite repeatedly. Um, so, I mean, I can sing a little bit of it for you um, to just to give you a sense of um, when he's talking about you can come and get all the different bits of his body. Um, his quarters stand not all together, but ye may have to bring them leather in place where ye would have them be. Then might ye do as pleaseth ye. For why they hang on shrine at each one upon a stang. Thus stands the case. On London's gates they have a place. His head upon a pole stands wavering in ye whirling wind. But where should be his soul to you belongeth for to find? I wish ye purgatory look and search each corner with your hook, etc., etc. So it's um, it 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 mocks Catholics. It mocks all their traditions around the deaths. And funerals, um, because that's, of course, central to the Reformation, is that all of these superstitious traditions that the, the Catholics have around the dead um, are meaningless. Um, so it's it's really, really nasty. And the French are doing the same about Protestants, right? So they've got very similar kinds of songs going on across the channel, but they're directed at the other group. So I, I, I'm not sure why. Um, it, the English and French do this uh, so much more. I didn't. I just w- really don't find this kind of nasty, but quite funny and witty stuff uh, in German or Dutch, for example. Yeah, it's amazing to hear lyrics like that set to such a jaunty tune. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I have directed people in the dancing of that song while that's <laughs> being sung. So it's I would like to say it's like they're it's like they're dancing on his grave, except of course he didn't have one, and that's the whole point. Yeah. Yeah, it really is, though. I mean, that it's just a musical grave dancing, yeah. mocking the fact that there is no grave to dance on. Yes, yeah, amazing. Dance <laughs> um, what are some of the other you know examples of contrafactum? Since we have the joyous, nasty songs. <laughs> yeah, look, and I mean, they're not the most common by by far. Yeah. The, by far, the most common are um, well, the best. Uh, best known song, the most used songs uh, are a tune for songs about death and disaster and generally terrible things is Fortune My Foe, uh, which has been traced to sort of uh, early Tudor around the time of Henry VIII. Um, it could be older, we don't know. Um, and it's just a very simple kind of dirgy song. And it is not only the most popular song in 16th and 17th century England, but also the Netherlands, where it's known as Le Fortune Anglis. And um, and then I also find it in France, where it goes by a different name, which is uh, Dame d'honneur, je vous prie à jointe, uh, which is sort of honourable ladies, I, I pray to you with closed hands, I beseech you. Um, and that, I think it's popular because, A, it's simple to sing, Mm-hmm. And also, um, it people like to sing about really miserable things in this period. <laughs> people are really miserable in the 16th and 17th century. Is it lingering as much on the gory details, you know, as the previous song did? 
Um, not in a fun way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, people they'll sing about you know being burned and things like that. It's it can be quite, um, yeah. It can be it's it's quite dark, yeah. Um, but people like that, you know. Um, so, for example, there's one about a woman called Anne Wallen, who is uh, a good example of um, there's a, a sort of a, a craze, a kind of a fad for songs about. Uh, wives who murder their husbands in early mm-hmm. 17th century Britain. Uh, there's a whole kind of rash of these songs that are all very similar. And it's they're nearly always in the first person voice of the, the woman who's murdered her husband. And she sings, as do many of these execution ballads, she sings to the imagined spectators at the execution and sings of her remorse, the terrible things she's done. Mm. Now, Alan Wallen is interesting because we know there was a, a an elite man watching the execution and he said everybody knew that she was the victim of domestic abuse and she essentially killed her husband in self-defense, wow. um, which is likely to be the issue with most of these women, right? But there's no sign of that in the ballot, absolutely not. Ah, um, okay. These are meant to be, you know, tools, didactic tools for teaching uh, listeners to repent, to be remorseful, to do the good, the right thing. You don't want to end up like this person. What so, has been common knowledge that she was, you know, a victim of domestic abuse among the people who'd be singing it? Um, who knows, right? I mean, that's the hardest yeah. thing of all to to work out is is reception. You know, who was actually singing this and when and and for mm-hmm. what reason? But the point is, this gets printed, so the people at the actual execution might have known that she was uh, a victim of violence, but uh, no one else will know that, you know, that's, that can buy this song printed maybe in another city. Um, but her message is, you know, don't, don't do what I did. So I can sing a couple of verses um, just so you get a sense of, it's quite simple tune, right? And I think that's part of its popularity. If ever died a true repentant soul, then I am she whose deeds are black and foul. Then take heed, wives, be to your husbands kind, and bear this lesson truly in your mind. Let not your tongues or sway true reason's bounds, which in your rage your utmost rancor sounds. A woman that is wise should seldom speak, unless discreetly she her words repeat. So that's a very common message in conduct books and things um, of yes. the era, which is why should be silent and good and do what their husband tell them, no matter how, how much he gets drunk, no matter how many bad things he does. It's her job to keep him sweet, yeah. It's a haunting tune as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's powerful. I mean, it's used so much that you'd think it uh, it might lose some of its power, but it it doesn't seem to. What's interesting is when it gets used in French, is that it's nearly always songs written in the voices of noble women, um, and it's used a lot in the wars of religion, and very often it's put into the voices of Protestant noble women who are singing to their husbands. Um, and criticizing their husbands for having um, betrayed the king. 
by taking up arms against the king. And they're saying, look what has happened to us. You know, these terrible sort of sieges of big cities. And they say, oh, um, there's one city, Iswa, which is, you know, horrifically after the siege, there's horrific, you know, murders and mutilations and things. And, you know, these women sing, the women of Iswa sing to their men and say, why did you make this happen? Why did you bring this upon us? You should have been good Catholics and listen to your king. So it's quite a powerful um use of the female voice to send a very specific message, even, you know, in the same way that Anne Wallens is. Um, mm-hmm. She gets, you know, ventrilo- ventriloquized to give a message about actually this should be about wifely submission, really. That's the message you take away from it. Yeah, it's fascinating that it's used in such an instructive manner, you know, even though the circumstances are different, you know, between the two countries. I mean, if there's one thing that I would say about the, the one continuity of execution ballads is their didactic nature. They are there to teach you a lesson about um, being morally upstanding, um, staying close to God, um, you know, learning the lesson from this person who didn't. So many of the execution ballad subjects, um, like I said, many of them are in the first person voice. They are... Um, figures for whom you're expected to feel compassion, right? That Anne Wallen is, even if you believed the song and you believe that she got mad and murdered her husband, she's still presented as a sympathetic character who is like an every every woman, every man, anyone could become like this. If you turn away from God, if you stop going to church, uh, if you start drinking, you know, those kinds mm-hmm. of things. Eventually this will this could happen to you, that you'll do something so terrible that you'll end up um, begging for for God's mercy in their final moments of life. So, the the I think it's really important that we we recognize how much compassion we're supposed to have in this period, and how much compassion there would have been at the execution site. Um, I mean, we can't we can't say you know we know exactly what people were feeling, but we can say what they were encouraged to feel, and certainly at execution sites, whenever there are people documenting them, right through the late 19th century, the overwhelming sense is that the crowd that is gathered wants the person to be repentant. Mm-hmm. They want a good performance of remorse on the scaffold because if they're not, if you have, we're all sinners, right? We've yeah. all done something. And if you go to your death with sin on your soul, you're going that way. You know, you're yeah. going to hell. Today, you know, and you're watching as this person, like in the final seconds of their life, if they do it right, they will be with God today. If they don't, and if they're resisting it, then everybody goes, oh, no, 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 you can't do this. You have to, you know, so I can imagine it would be an extraordinary um, moment to witness for, for the crowd because um, you're, you're watching someone decide their salvation or not in in the real in real time so um all every execution ballot almost all of them um and the final verse is the the condemned turns to god and says please god show me mercy you know they beg for mercy in that final verse um and that's because that's what you're hoping for <laughs> yeah it's interesting because a lot of the characterization that i you have seen popularly of this time period isn't viewing it through the lens of compassion. No. And you certainly, you know, in your book, um, some of the selections that you have from people who were witnessing executions, you know, did have this 
almost um, holy feel to it, mm. you know, where people, you know, were really sympathizing, you know, and were really concerned as opposed to, you know, being out for blood. Yeah, was this more popular? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it that that sort of uh, popular portrayal of the jeering crowd, the baying spectators, is very rare, and I I really don't know um, of any off the top of my head of any uh, example I can think of. There's certainly no kind of universal, absolutely everybody's the same, or any you know kind of um, example that's you know universal, but. Um, there is a sense that this is a, a spiritual event. Even, I, I want to really stress that well into the late 19th century, uh, this is still seen as, you know, salvation is in the balance here. People are still for what's supposed to be a much more secular Europe. People are still very religious and they really see it as an important thing to do. And that if, even if the, the worst criminal who's done terrible, terrible things, um, if they are remorseful and repentant, then that's good. People are relieved. Um, Andrea McKenzie's book, Tyburn's Martyrs, is a really great discussion of this because she shows the variety of people who are there because one of the things she's interested in are the sort of 18th century high women and criminals mm-hmm. who want to die, die game, as it's called, where they don't care about the um, God and they don't care about the, the rules, whatever. Um, and some of them are like that. But a lot are not, you know, and there's, and there's, you know, when you get to Tyburn, which is London's like central execution site, they can, they can technically hang 24 people in the same day. Jeez. I mean, they don't normally do that many. They only did it once, but they do usually have a cartload of people. And there can be an extraordinary variety in the reactions of those people. Um, some are very, very repentant. Some are really calm. Others are freaking out. Some are sick, you know. There's everything there, but I, it's definitely not a, you, you don't think of a crowd as, you know, I, I think that, uh, theory about the carnivalesque, um, mm-hmm. crowd that Thomas Lacour came up with uh, has really kind of skewed, I think, people's understanding of what the, the situation was really like. I think there was a variety of things going on. Um, and certainly if you look at elite critics of public execution in the 19th century, they will describe the mob, and they will always use that term, the mob, yep. as being, um, you know, that the sort of carnivalesque idea. They're drunk, they're criminals, they're pickpockets, they're prostitutes. Uh, there's nobody with a proper job. You know, they're just there to to get drunk and steal from others. But actually, the the evidence that we have, because there was a, a, a crowd that got trampled at, a, at an execution that had thirty to 40,000 people at it, in London. And when they went through the coroner's reports of each person who had died, they were, they were all employed. There were no pickpockets. You know, they were often apprentices, um, a lot of young people curious about this extraordinary thing. And in fact, when they interviewed all of their um, employers, masters, etc., and parents, they all said, we told them not to go. We said, we can't, you can't go because you'll get trampled, you know, and so it was the crowds they were worried about, not witnessing somebody's death. Yeah. It was the idea that these, these crowds are really dangerous. And they were. I mean, you did have all kinds of terrible things because you had tens of thousands of people going to see it. But I think curiosity is probably the biggest driver of oh, going, to, you know, for going to an execution. And I, I know for certain that if there were public executions today, tens of thousands of people would turn up. 
for sure. Yeah. I mean, if you look at how people are drawn to sites of disasters now, yeah. you know, it, I imagine <laughs> <laughs> true, true. I imagine it's a similar sort of thing though. And I, one of the things that struck me the most reading your book was how you characterized shame and mm. shame's place within the execution. And throughout our conversation here, I was thinking about how that also might have played into the compassion that people felt, you know, for the people who were executed. Yeah, yeah. So shame was a really interesting um, sort of phenomenon that I kept coming across because all of these songs mention shame, but they don't mention it when the crime is being discussed. You know, a lot of these will say, I went and I murdered that girl or whatever. But the shame isn't there. It's not that the crime is shameful. The shame is mentioned at the end of the song as the person's being executed. The ending is shameful. The execution is shameful. And I thought, well, what does that mean? And why why would someone who is about to be dead worry about being ashamed? Mm-hmm. Right? Because, you know, I, I can understand why they'd be scared of pain and scared of death. But why be scared of shame? It was because they understood, as everyone in Europe understood, that the shame was not about me. It's about my family that I leave behind, who will be ostracized and um, stigmatized because of, and importantly, not because of the crime I've done, but the manner in which I am punished. And so this is a, it gets very complicated because the concept of shame, and I think perhaps infamy, is maybe a better word to use because today we tend to think of shame as something personal. It's me. Yeah. If I've done something and everyone's looking at me and I'm ashamed. We have to think of it completely differently. And in fact, it was the reading that I was doing on so-called honor killings in which the family has a, a level of honor in their community. And one person can ruin that for the whole family, Right. That's the kind of shame we're talking about. It's not an individual thing. It's held by the family because this is an honor-based society. So each family is born with a certain level of honor. Um, obviously, noble people have far more than, you know, you and me. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, therefore, there's also, there's a lot of different methods of execution, ranging from a sword beheading by sword to breaking on the wheel, which is horrific. Yeah. And each one of them has a different corresponding level of shame that goes with it. And essentially the quicker it is, the more honorable it is, the slower it is, the less honorable. Um, If it um, is something, if if the sort of weapon of death, as we might call it, is um, very close to the natural world. So if you're um, drowned, it's water, if you're buried alive, it's dirt, earth. Um, if you're um, hanged with a rope, well, it, you actually just um, like slowly asphyxiate. So you, it's actually air, you know, that's killing you. Um, and if you're burned, obviously fire. Those are more shameful, right? So family members will petition the, the crown and the authorities to not to get their loved one not executed, like not to like take away the death sentence, but to change the method by which they are executed, because they know that that will mean everything to them. That if someone is, if they're, uh, you know, they they won't be as ostracized as if 
Um, you know, so to be beheaded rather than be hanged, so much better. So we actually have a couple of robbers who are told, the priest goes into them and says, you know, in, in Germany, and he says, you're going to be beheaded instead of hanged. And they fall on their knees crying and, and um, thanking him and kissing his hands because they're so thrilled, because they know that their families won't suffer as much. So that's why the shame is mentioned in every song. Um, and it took me a long time to work that out because, of course, we don't have those kinds of ideas at all anymore. Yeah, um, it's a fascinating notion. Yeah, the method of your punishment will change everything. And in fact, when they bring in um, the, you know, when the French Revolution happens, um, there's a physician, uh, Monsieur Guillotin, who gets up in front of the National Assembly and, and proposes um, a whole range of um, articles um, about how we should reform punishment, crime and punishment. And he comes up with them and nearly all of them refer to the treatment of the family afterwards. You know, there's only there's only one or two that are about the cruelty, of, you know, on the person. So he invents, um, or you know, he comes up with the guillotine, or the, he comes up with a machine, and people laugh at it so much. The idea that you can just replace an executioner uh, with a, a simple machine that they, they they laugh at it and they call him the, 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 we'll call this machine the guillotine, um, and it's actually a, a, an incredible leveling device that everyone now. I mean, the other thing I didn't really go into is the fact that, of course, if you're an honorable person, if you're a noble person, you'll always get beheaded. Yeah. It's only, you know, plans to quick. get the other things. <laughs> yeah, the beheading would be quicker than... It's know, quicker I mean, and it uses a sword usually, um, which is nice. It's got, you know, um, you know, associated with noble chivalry, that sort of thing. Um, it's very far removed from the natural world. You know, it's been fashioned over time. Um, yeah, so... The, the guillotine says, you know, everyone's going to get the same method. It's going to be quick. It's not going to be cruel. It's not going to be drawn out. And it doesn't matter who you are. So it's actually a leveling device, right? So this, this will make everything the same for everyone. Um, the fact that it then becomes associated with the terror and everything is really, it's kind of sad, really, because it's actually supposed to be kind. That's the yeah. point. Yeah. And with um, the earlier you know, song that you introduced us to, A Letter to Rome, it was almost as if the fellow was getting executed multiple times. You know, within oh, yeah. the same. I mean, that's so that being quartered is uh, standard for all um, traitors. So it's, it's kind of interesting because he's technically a heretic, right? But mm -hmm. Elizabeth the first is a bit savvy, and she realizes that if she burns heretics, she'll be like her sister that nobody likes. Um, Bloody Mary. So instead, she'll treat them as traitors because you can't disagree with treason. I mean, treason's terrible. Yeah. You could, you know, religion you can fight over, but treason, everyone knows that's terrible. So she treats them like traitors. Um, but really, I think quartering is not as bad as being broken on the wheel, which is not practiced in Britain, only on the continent. It's quite widespread there. And it's for heinous murderers, people who commit really terrible things. And again, nearly always men. And they are stretched out, arms and legs stretched out in a kind of starfish kind of shape and then tied down. And the executioner smashes their limbs in between the joints. And then they have their now dislocated limbs um, woven through the spokes of a cartwheel so that their bodies are horrifically mangled. And then the cartwheel is put on a big pole and hiked up so that people can see it from miles around. And the judges will 
decree whether the person is to be killed instantly so that the first blow should land on the neck and therefore they'd be dead um or that the the exec- executioner should work from from the feet upwards and so slowly um you know smash their limbs and maybe keep them alive and that's for the really worst the, the worst ones they they actually allow them to live but horrifically mangled for days it's quite something <laughs> absolutely and so you'll ignore it whenever you look at you know old master paintings of kind of cityscapes particularly northern old masters german dutch you'll always see in the in the distance um little things sticking up and they're nearly always little bodies on wheels that are hooking up outside the city i had no idea oh yeah you'll see them everywhere now <laughs> i will <laughs> But I, I was really struck, though, by the amount of compassion that was you know, being shown, um, particularly you wrote about uh, cases of infant, you know, infanticide mm. and how there was a bit more compassion than one might expect you know, for the um, woman in these cases. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. There's a lot of really great recent research being done on this for different areas of Europe. And the, the kind of consensus is that communities understood the risks that girls were placed in. Uh, Young women are the most vulnerable people in the society at that point. So um, things, mistakes happen, you know, there's no birth control, you know, Um, and people are just like, can we, is there some way we can fix this? And they're mostly not wanting to get rid of the babies, but um, you know, so they'll, they'll do all kinds of things to try and make the situation better. Um, and sometimes that's the only option left, right? So sometimes it's not just the girl going off and secretly murdering um, a baby. Um, or, you know, what is more common is that she gives birth and then hides the baby or, or buries it or something, you know, and so it dies very quickly. What's interesting is that from the late 16th century onwards, across Europe, each uh, government brings in increasingly draconian regulations and legislation against infanticides. Specifically, they say that the any woman who, um, you know, gives birth and then doesn't tell anybody and the baby is dead is guilty of murder premeditated murder. And of course, when you have extraordinarily high infant mortality rates, that's a really dodgy thing to do if you don't have any evidence that she actually murdered this baby. Because a lot of these girls say that it was dead. It came out and was dead, which could be true. I mean, also just cases of SIDS and things like that. Well, exactly. You know, so, but this is, this is going on everywhere. And so you would, um, there is a rise in the number of um, executions, and so what you should see is a corresponding rise in the number of songs about these girls, right? If there's so many more girls being executed, then we love to sing about woman murderers, you know, as I already showed you. Anyone who is not the typical criminal, we're very excited, just as we are today. If there's a, a criminal who's like a woman, a murderer's woman or a child or, you know, there's something uh, not standard. In other words, they're not a, a, a man between the ages of 16 and 45. That's the, that's the one we want to hear about. But there isn't, there isn't the same rise in songs about, 
at least not about identifiable cases from the you know criminal records. Uh, it it's strange, I, and I you know I think my theory is that people just didn't want to sing about real girls this happened to. There are songs, particularly in French, um, although they're they're everywhere. There's a lot in Scottish as well about kind of fictionalized accounts of uh, this sort of thing happening. And they're very they're often very um, moving. Those those what we might call the songs of the oral tradition. Well, that's a problematic kind of um, way of describing them. But these ideas that they're not even trying to identify a specific girl. Um, they are often um, songs that reveal how difficult it is for these girls and they're they're very troubled and they're very upset and they're, they're really sad but in terms of songs where you can specifically identify the you know they give, they give you a date and they give you a name they're very very thin on the ground um, and I think it's because people just didn't want to glory in the agony that these girls would have endured and this there is an attempt in some of these songs to picture these women as cruel, nasty, evil women who, you know, murder children. Oh, they're like witches, you know. It just doesn't, I, people just don't believe it, I don't think. So they just don't sell well. And I mean, again, it, this is a business. If your product doesn't sell well, that's it, you're done. Printers aren't going to print them if they think that nobody will really buy them. Yeah, it might have been that they were just a bit too close to home and sympathetic that, you know, this could happen to me. Well, exactly. I mean, that's something that really could happen to you. You know, that that um, I just think I think people didn't want to identify and and um, with specific women. It's, it just was too hard. Yeah, so the other thing I wanted to you know, ask you about was why did this tradition stop? You know, because it's documented for centuries upon centuries being such a popular thing. Yeah. So I noticed when I, I actually was, when I got my Excel spreadsheets out, I started, um, you know, working things out chronologically. I realized that, um, it seems to in almost every country have, there's, there's a drop off, a serious drop off in printed ballads about executions around the moment that public executions stop happening and they're moved inside the prison walls. So they're then called private executions. There's still you know, maybe several hundred people get invited, but not anyone could just rock, rock up. You don't get the tens of thousands anymore. Um, and you notice a, a precipitous decline in the number of ballots being printed. So there seems to have been a, a strong link between the physical performance of ballots for the public at or sorry, of executions for the public mm -hmm. and the performance of ballads. There's the only ones that remain, for example, um, after executions go private are really horrendous murderers that do something quite specifically horrific. So, he, you know, the guy doesn't just kill his wife, he cuts her up into pieces and, you know, puts her body somewhere. Or someone who murders and rapes children, you know, something like that. It has to be a really excessive crime because I would say as well, by the time you get to the 19th century, the only crime that features in execution ballads, it's almost exclusively murder. Um, all the other ones have kind of faded away. Uh, so they have to do something really terrible with this murder, um, something extra. 
um, to, to appear in a ballot after executions have become private. So we really only have a handful. Um, and the only exception to that that I found was in Italy. Again, Italy always has a, it seems to be the exception, where there's this whole kind of rash of ballots that I find, these printed broadsheets. Um, but very often they are, I mean, the, the, the ironic thing is that Italy is one of the earliest places to get rid of executions. Mm-hmm. It's it's complicated, but it starts in Tuscany where they they just abolish all executions. And so people are no longer being executed in Italy, but Italy is producing songs in which it sounds like the person's about to be executed. And I thought that seems strange. And it so weirdly, it's almost as if there's a sort of nostalgia for the good old days when justice was brutal and swift. Um, and so a lot of the songs actually end with the, you know, the sort of imaginary crowd of people, the, the people in the, either in the court or on the streets yelling for justice. Um, and that's a really common kind of thing, but actually, and so, it, you know, if you didn't know any better, you'd say yes, you know, and then, and then they must have been executed, but they're not. Um, so there's actually, if, funnily enough, uh, an increase in songs about, soldiers being executed by you know a court martial mm-hmm. um and then by firing squad because they are actually because the military code is different to the civil code they are the only executions that are still happening and so you have you kind of have this rash of firing squad execution <laughs> songs um because they're desperate it seems like the italians really want to keep singing these songs whereas everybody else is like yeah except of course the french who are still publicly executing people up until 1939 which is just absurdly recent. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and yeah, and there are songs about all of those guys until then, and then they just stop. Yeah, that's amazing, they- though, that just for the most part, you know, mm-hmm. making the executions private stops the you know, lust for hearing songs about them. Yeah, and I, I think we could theorize about all the different reasons why that happens. I think that's a, too big a question. I don't, I'm not really sure, but there's definitely a connection between the, the physical witnessing and the needing to sing the song about it. Yeah, what do you think it is that ultimately draws us so much to these sorts of songs, though? Yeah, I mean, I think the fascination with someone's final moments of life, right? Um, that it's, it, you know, so many of these songs are in the first person voice. And they sing, and if they, some of them are quite long, you know, and if you sing them long enough, you really get into it, and they build towards the end as they as this person looks at the, the noose or the flames or the axe or whatever, and you can get quite caught up in the emotion of it, and then you know your last words are, "Oh, please God, have mercy on my soul." And I think for a moment, it's you know, I think it's the same thrill, that vicarious thrill. Um, you know, we, we, now we go on roller coasters and, um, things like that to feel that kind of heightened emotion, like I'm about to die. Um, I think those songs offer that you, for a moment, you get to feel what it's like to be panicking in your last moments of life. Um, and I think that's what the biggest draw is of them. Yeah. I also was taken by you mentioning, um, things like transportation songs, as being rather similar in you know, the same structure of sorts. 
Yeah, so, I mean, Britain starts transporting its um, its convicts out here to Australia in, in the late 18th century, and the the idea of punishment songs just goes with them, you know. Uh, a lot of those transported convicts are actually Irish. It was a quick way of getting rid of all the Irish that had flooded London after the famine. And so um, they have a, a very strong um, connection with Ireland and the London printing industry, the, the, that cheap print industry is um, staffed by a lot of Irish people, um, migrants to London. And there's so many songs, not just about Irish people in London, but even about executions in Ireland are being printed in London because there's a real market for them. And so when those people get shipped off to Australia, they take those songs and they, they uh, you know, write about their own themes. So, so many of the very popular folk songs today in Ireland, um, they might not mention it in the chorus that everyone knows, but in the verses, they'll say, you know, it's lonely round the fields of Athen Rye, which is now almost like the Irish national anthem, because Michael's been sent to Botany Bay or, you know, souls has gone to Van Diemen's land. And, now, you know, so there's all kinds of um, songs like that that uh, have, have now become part of the standard folk tradition in Ireland. Um, but they you, they do all of the same kinds of things that these execution ballads have been doing. There's contrafactum, you're, you know, using the tunes that you know really well. They're even lifting whole verses and, you know, lines from older songs, songs that can be like 100 years older and sticking them into the new ones. Um, so there's a sense that, that the injustice, it, it, that's, I suppose, where they would differ is that nearly always the there's an injustice going on this person's been sent to australia um for a you know a bad reason the authorities are not any longer to be trusted they are no longer serving justice so that's where i would say they do change uh, these are more like rebel songs you know um they're not there isn't the repentance that you find in the um in the execution ones, perhaps because they're not going to meet their maker. They're going to Australia. <laughs> no, not, not quite. It's not that panic. <laughs> yeah, it was really interesting to read that as somebody who just uh, recently learned how to play Botany Bay. <laughs> right. <laughs> it definitely was uh, a surprise to come across it reading your book. And it's great. I've, I've talked to Australians here. I've given talks in Australia um, where I, I, I show the history of those songs. I said, that here's where that verse came from. Here's the older song that that was from, blah, 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 blah. And the Australians, certainly older ones, um, were taught all of those songs in school when they were children. And so they come up and they had, said, we had no idea there was this long, long tradition. I said, yeah, yeah, these are hundreds of centuries that there's this tradition going on. Um, and these songs are all part of it, you know. I mean, Botany Bay is interesting because it's not even necessarily a transportation ballad. It's the one that's written for the musical vaudeville theatre um, and performed, I think it's 45 years after transportation yes. has ended. Right? Yes. <laughs> so again, you've got that nostalgia for this. Um, yeah, the good old um, days of transportation. The good old days. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a bit like that now here. People are very proud of their convict heritage here. And I think they, they're like the, we're, you know, descended from the first fleet, they'll say. Um, so it's, yeah, there is a nostalgia about it, yeah. yeah so I um, want to recommend that people go to your website, um, which is currently undergoing some changes, but... Um, yeah, so lots of these songs are on there. 
Yeah, it's uh, brilliant. It's uh, executionballads.com, correct? Yep, that's it. Yeah, uh, what are you working on now, uh, if I may ask? So I'm working on a project that kind of extends this one um, to look at, um, as I said, the other news categories of song. So politics, political satire, um, uh, disasters, natural and and also wonders, because, of course, we didn't always understand what a comet was. We saw it as a celestial wonder. So those kinds of things all come together. Um, military conflicts, battles, sieges, that sort of thing. So these are the big, big sort of um, overarching categories. And thinking Fantastic. about Yeah, there's, I mean, it's, it's ambitious because there's so many, yes. like I said. You know, I mean, you could write a, a book just on m- German military songs. You know what I mean? Um, never mind multiple languages. Never mind. Um, over centuries so um but yeah hopefully that will get going yeah um where can people find you online if they want to follow what you're working on um i'm on on twitter and instagram and i'm pretty easy to find (laughs) excellent my um, my website (laughs) michaelvanna.com that would be the easiest (laughs) if they want to um order my book um execution ballads uh, singing the news of death um, it's available from Oxford University Press. There is a discount code. It's just uh, AAFLYG6, and that will give you 30% off the fairly hefty price tag because it's an academic book. So I'm encouraging people to ask their librarians to um, order book and to give them the discount code. And uh, let me tell you, it is 100% worth getting. It is a phenomenal book that is just an utter wealth of information. Thank you so much. uh, Thank you so much for your time. On the Folklore Podcast website episode page for this episode, you'll find a link to Una's Execution Ballad online resources, as well as to her personal website, unamacalvena.com, and her social media. My thanks to Una for a fascinating discussion. We'll be back soon with another episode, and in a moment we'll play out with another execution ballad from Una's collection. Don't forget that you can help us to keep producing content by joining our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast, where you can also access additional content each month. And, if you've never reviewed us, please consider putting a brief review onto Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever it is that you listen. This really helps us to bring new audiences to the show. Thanks for your support and for listening. See you next time. Young maidens all beware That sees my dismal state Endeavour now to shun the snare Before it is too late I was a servant maid And lived most happily until at last I was betrayed to this debauchery. Then with my master I did take the cause in hand, resolved my mistress she should die by our most cruel hand. Strong poison we contrived, this was our heinous sin, that she of life might be deprived, poor soul, when she lay in. To you that come to see, O woeful sinners fall, 
Oh, let those cruel flames now be a warning to you all.